0: Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. In our current series, Journey to the Cross, we're looking at the event that transpired on Thursday evening of the Passion Week, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's hear today's message from Dr. John Neufeld on how the journey will end in triumph.
1: Heavenly Father, as we talk about Gethsemane today, my fear is that I will not honour you as you should be honoured. So, Father, take these words and use them for your glory. Help us to remember Gethsemane as we should. In Jesus' name, amen. Frank Reed was held hostage by terrorists in a cell in Lebanon for four years. For months at a time, he was blindfolded, living in complete darkness, or chained to a wall and kept in complete silence. On one occasion, he was moved to another room, and although blindfolded, he could sense others in the room. Weeks later, he discovered that he was now chained next to Terry Anderson and Tom Sutherland. Although Frank Reed had been beaten and made ill, tormented, he said that what he felt most was the lack of caring. In an interview, he said, Nothing I did mattered to anyone. I began to realize how withering it is to exist with not a single expression of caring around me. I learned one overriding fact— Caring is a powerful force. If no one cares, you are truly alone. As we've been leading up to Easter, we have been tracing the last week of Jesus' life. Today we come to late Thursday night, before the dawn broke on Friday, and we find Jesus in prayer at Gethsemane. I want to present him as one who is truly alone. Back in 1914, Ben Price wrote the words of a hymn that captured the mood of Matthew 26. Ben Price wrote, It was alone my Savior prayed in dark Gethsemane. Alone he drained the bitter cup and suffered there for me. Alone, alone he bore it all alone. He gave himself to save his own. He suffered, bled, and died alone. You will remember that Jesus has, together with his disciples, partaken in the Passover meal. Judas has gone out into the night, and without Judas there, Jesus has taken the next, perhaps, several hours in the upper room to instruct his disciples. John, in his book of 21 chapters, gives us five chapters on what Jesus said in that room alone, John 13-17, through which is close to one quarter of his book. But now the instruction at the Passover meal is over, and Jesus and his disciples will leave Jerusalem, go down the steep embankment into the Kidron Valley, which was still flowing with the blood of sacrificed lambs. As as he crossed the valley, I want you to imagine the blood of those lambs staining the very bottom of their garments, a kind of marker of what is to follow. And then they go up the other side, which was filled with olive groves. And he, together with the eleven, will spend the night in a garden of a friend, a garden called Gethsemane. The word means the olive press. It was a place which would have both olive trees and a press used to press or crush the olives so that one could extract the oil from it. It seems somehow fitting to me that in this place, Jesus was awaiting to be crushed, as Luke describes it, that his sweat became as drops of blood falling to the ground. Matthew records that on their way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus was speaking to them. He said, you will all fall away because of me this night. He knows he will stand alone. But he also knows that every time he has spoken to his disciples about his death and resurrection, they simply weren't able or willing to listen. So in order to emphasize this point, he quotes Zechariah 13, verse 7. He says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The harsh, brutal truth of this matter was to have its full effect. Just a few hours ago, Judas had defected, and now they will scatter. Could it get any worse? Will this horrible night ever end? But in order to make a distinction between them and Judas, Jesus says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. He makes it plain that when he is raised from the dead, he will gather them again. It might be troubling to hear how weak and disloyal they are, but they should know that Jesus will not be disloyal to them. He wants them to weep over how fragile they are, but he does not want them to despair. My listener, can you identify with how weak these men are? Are you any different than they are? How easily we crumble under pressure. How quickly we all become cowards. But Jesus is promising them that in spite of their failure, he will not abandon them. But the disciples respond not by confessing their weakness. Rather, they respond in confidence. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Luke records Jesus confronting Peter by explaining how difficult the matter has become. Simon, he says, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. Jesus is trying to tell Peter that a great spiritual war is right now going on and that he and the remaining 11 are now under a massive demonic attack, so fierce that it would destroy all of them. He had already claimed Judas, but I have stood in the gap, he says, and I have pleaded your case before God. Peter should have drunk that thought in and said, thank you. Please don't stop praying. I did not know of the spiritual warfare in the heavens, and I am not prepared, but with your help, you might guide me safely through. But there's none of that. Mark even records Peter saying, even if they all fall away, I imagine him, pointing at the remaining 10, but I will not fall away. Luke records Peter telling Jesus he will not hesitate for a moment to go to prison and to death for him. Please see in Peter's response two very troubling realities. First, notice his dismissal of Jesus. He contradicts what Jesus says and reprimands him. What you have just said is not true. Jesus, you are underestimating me. Second, notice how he dismisses the rest of the ten as potentially weak and reckons himself strong in contrast. Even if he were to stand before the most horrific, satanic onslaught, he will be fine. And it's here, standing outside on the way to the Mount of Olives, that Jesus tells him that before the rooster crows announcing the morning, he will have already denied him three times. But even at this news, Peter vehemently denies this as a reality. And before we move on, I want to bring something to our attention. If you read John's gospel, Jesus speaks about Peter's denial while they are still in the upper room. Matthew and Mark seem to indicate that he said these things on the way to Gethsemane. So where exactly did Jesus say that they would deny him? I think the answer to the puzzle is actually quite simple. I think Jesus said the same words twice. And the effect both times was very similar. Peter was not listening on both occasions, and his adamant refusal to believe and to understand left Jesus standing alone. And now they come to the Mount of Olives in the dark, to a place called Gethsemane. And as they arrive, Jesus directs his disciples. Eight of them are to remain at some distance, perhaps even outside of the stone wall enclosure of the garden, and three of them, Peter, James, and John, are to join him. And up until this moment he has shown self-control and he has masked his deep anguish which was constantly building i think that's why the eight were put at some distance but with these three jesus now confides this truth he says my soul is very sorrowful even unto death and as we know in just a little while his agony would be so great he would pray with such intensity that the blood vessels in his forehead would burst, and the blood would congeal in the night air, falling in clumps to the ground. And as he prayed, he would say, Father, take this cup from me. And it's not that he prayed that only once. The gospel writers mention that he prayed it three times. And we're going to come back to what that means in a moment. But at the very least, he was looking for a way out under this heavy load that he was bearing. Consider the contrast of the death of Jesus with the death of the Greek philosopher Socrates. Socrates was wrongly condemned to death, just as Jesus was, and his sentence was that he had to drink a cup of hemlock, a deadly poison that would kill him. Socrates' disciple Plato records what happened next. Let me read to you from Plato's account. When Crito heard, he signaled to the slave who was standing by. The boy went out and returned after a few moments with the man who was to administer the poison which he brought ready to be mixed in a cup. When Socrates saw him, he said, Now, good sir, you understand these things. What must I do? Just drink it and walk around until your legs feel heavy. Then lie down. It will soon act. With that, he offered Socrates the cup. The latter took it quite cheerfully, without a tremor, with no change of color or expression. He just gave the man this stolid look and asked, How, you say, is it permissible to pledge this drink to anyone, may I? And the answer came, we allow reasonable time in which to drink it. I understand, he said. We can and must pray to the gods that our sojourn on earth will continue happy beyond the grave. This is my prayer, and may it come to pass. And with these words, he stoically drank the potion quite readily and cheerfully. And that's how Socrates died. Compare this with Jesus. Matthew says he fell on his face and pleaded with his father. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. See, why did Socrates accept death cheerfully and Christ urged his disciples to watch with him, but they would not? Jesus wanted his disciples to keep awake, keep praying, and then he spent the night in agony. What explains this? It was Martin Luther commenting on this moment who said, Never has any man feared death more than Jesus. Why is that so? Why is Jesus more fearful than Socrates? The entire answer to that question comes down to this. What did Jesus mean when he says, Let this cup pass from me? When we come back, we're
0: going to consider this. This has been a powerful introduction to the journey that took Jesus and his disciples to that fateful night in the Garden of Gethsemane the place where he was preparing to be crushed. I think too, we can all get a picture of how alone Jesus really was in his moment of suffering and anguish leading up to the cross. When we come back, Dr. Newfeld explains what it was truly like for Jesus to take the cup of God's wrath and how this too was part of God's good plan. Without so many people listening and supporting this program, this ministry couldn't survive. And without so many who are faithful to pray and to give financially, we wouldn't be able to continue touching lives. Here's a comment from a listener who said, I listen to Dr. Neufeld's teaching of God's Word every day. It's so truthful, clear, uplifting, insightful, inspiring, and overall just exemplary. Do you share our heart to minister God's Word to Canadians? Well join us in prayer and support us with a ministry gift today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: The image of a cup came from the Old Testament. Remember that the Old Testament is the Bible Jesus used. Consider how Isaiah uses the image of a cup. When God is about to punish Jerusalem, he says, and I'm reading from Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or listen to the prophet Jeremiah as God is pronouncing judgment on the nations. I'm reading Jeremiah 25:15 and 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger, and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Or, listen to Ezekiel as he promises Judah that she will be punished the way her sister Israel was punished. I'm reading from Ezekiel 23, 31-34. You have gone the way of your sister, therefore I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large, and you shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, a cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out, and gnaw its shards, and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. So the cup is a cup filled with horror, the wrath and the desolation of God. God the Father was not handing his son a cup of hemlock and allowing him to enter peacefully into his presence. Instead, he was handing him a cup full of the fury and the wrath of a righteous, incensed and angry God for all the sins of the human race, and he said, drink it. And as Jesus looked into the cup, his face was filled with horror, his entire body convulsed and was overwhelmed at the mere thought of bringing such a cup to his lips. Please remember that Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully man. And as a man, I wonder. Of course, Jesus knew that he was going to suffer, but I wonder if he fully understood as man how the experience of suffering entailed the drinking of the cup of God's wrath. And this wrath was the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. This cup was so magnificently horror-filled that it almost completely suffocated him so that every human reaction was to draw back and run. And so, as Luke says, drops of blood were now being squeezed through his sweat, and just beside him lay his sleeping friends. Matthew tells us he prayed three times, and at the very least, his prayer lasted for an hour. The first time he prays saying, My Father, I know that all things are possible for you. Can you devise another way? I don't think Jesus is saying he doesn't want the cross. He's saying he doesn't want the cup of God's wrath. This is an incredible prayer because it not only has Jesus confessing that he doesn't want to drink it, But he rather looks for a way for the Father to be glorified in showing his mercy to broken and sinful humanity in another way. But there is no other way. For Jesus, the issue of God's glory was always paramount. There is nothing in my experience that helps me understand the depth of Christ's loneliness at that hour. His disciples did not understand and were now fast asleep. They were exhausted from the emotion of that day. I know there are those who have given their lives to ministry who know moments when everyone turns against them and criticizes them and and abandons them and then moves on and they're left alone. And they'll all say no energy is left. Some, when this happens, abandon the ministry and some become bitter and some soldier on and find their hope in God. But everyone will tell you who has ever suffered in this way that when the suffering is at its worst, it's almost impossible to care for someone. It's the other way around. Someone has to care for you but as we're about to see a new crisis upon them. And in his agony, Jesus actively cares for his disciples. See, the agony of Jesus and his prayers to God are now broken. Jesus quickly goes to his disciples and wakes them. The hour is at hand, he says. And as he is speaking, Judas arrives, and he is accompanied by the priests and the temple guard and a cohort of Roman soldiers. A cohort would normally have been made up of 600 soldiers, but some think in this case it was smaller, perhaps 200 Roman fighting men. They are carrying swords and clubs and lanterns. No doubt, Judas went straight from the upper room to the chief priests. They saw an opportunity, and they seized it. Quickly, they put together the needed reinforcements. Judas most likely led them to the upper room and found it empty, and then surmised where Jesus would have gone. John says he met there often with his disciples. The need for pointing out the right man was very important. It was dark. Some in the crowd would not know his face well, and so Judas agreed to betray him with a kiss we can safely say that the Judas kiss has become a byword for the ultimate in betrayal. So here is the contrast. A Roman and Jewish guard led by Judas assuming that Jesus would run and Jesus positioning himself so he can be easily caught. John mentions an incredible event. After the kiss, he says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus, knowing that this was going according to the foreordained plan of God, stepped forward toward the crowd and said, What do you want? Whom do you seek? There must have been a stunned pause. Then they answer, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, at least this is how it reads in English, I am he. In the Greek, and this is fascinating, he says, Ego a or I am. And with that, the entire cohort and the temple guard in shock draw back and fall to the ground. This incident has led many to wonder what happened, but I think the entire incident can be explained by those two words, I am. I'm reminded of the incident John relays in John 8. Jesus engaged in a heated debate with the Jewish religious leaders, and they ask him, who do you make yourself out to be? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Throughout the book of John, there are seven separate I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine, and you are the branches. You know, with each I am statement that John records, he helps us see the authority of the man in human form, yet the one who is the almighty God. His authority at that moment was stunning. And then Jesus says in the same voice of authority, so if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus, by giving himself up immediately in his excruciating agony, has protected his disciples. I know that in a moment of bravado, Peter almost blew their chance at escape. We know of him taking the sword and cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest, but Jesus again intervenes, performs a miraculous healing, tells Peter that if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword, and then utters words that will always be remembered. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? With those words, Jesus gave himself up to a suffering that none of us even if we've suffered a debilitating disease for a lifetime that has left us racked in pain, even that pain cannot compare to what happens next. You see, the sufferings of Christ which we will describe in the next two days, are a picture of Jesus draining the cup, filled with sufferings so great that from that day on, what he did on the cross would for all times satisfy the Father for the sins of the whole world. That which should have fallen upon us, all of us fell upon him in those next few hours." That's why the journey to the cross would end in triumph. Jesus, by submitting his will to the will of the Father, triumphed over sin, over death, over Satan, over the slandering mob, over hell and over the grave. What a Savior that we have. That's the gospel that we proclaim. That's why this week is unlike any other. That's why we have to celebrate as we do. It is Easter.
0: What a Savior. John, there's been a movement amongst some that would deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And I know you feel passionately about this, so how would you respond to them? I do feel
1: very passionately about this. And not just the substitutionary atonement of Christ, but also the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. That Christ bore the penalty for our sins. That the wrath of God rightly fell on Christ instead of us. Uh, This has to be taught afresh. I know there are some scholars that are saying that this is the most unfortunate doctrine that's ever been taught, but the Bible is very clear about this. This is what Christ did on the cross. He actually drank the bitter cup, and the bitter cup refers to the wrath of God. I mean, behind all of this is a just God who demands a recompense for our sins. Unless we tell the story of God's offended righteousness, we can never tell the story of the cross rightly. That's what I— I think we need to say, and that's why I feel so passionately about this.
0: Thanks, John. And we look forward to tomorrow as we continue in our study on Journey to the Cross as we enter into thinking about Good Friday, when Jesus goes to trial. Join us again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada. I think there is such a power and awe when we truly begin to understand that our sufferings will never even come close to what Christ suffered at Gethsemane, yet He overcame. At the same time, when we suffer, there is great comfort in knowing that we have a King who can identify with us. I pray that today's message has given you hope and allowed you a rare glimpse into what Jesus had to endure for the sake of our sin. Let this be cause for true worship and adoration of our Savior who became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I hope you join us tomorrow as we look at what happened on Good Friday when Jesus goes to trial. We've nearly completed Dr. Newfeld's Easter series, Journey to the Cross, and you can still receive your own personal copy of the series on CD. The series focuses on the critical events in Jesus' life, leading up to his death, crucifixion, and resurrection. Dr. Newfeld invites all of us to enter into the journey of Christ in such a way that we begin to feel as if we're there. It's so true that when we encounter Jesus like this in His Word, we begin to see Him and ourselves in a very different light. Hopefully, Journey to the Cross has prepared your heart for the Easter season. This month, we're offering this entire series on CD for just $19, including shipping and handling. So call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit backtothebible.ca.